Welcome everybody back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast where we spent three and a half years going through all of Rick Riordan's books, except we didn't hit the Kane Chronicles yet. And now we're talking about the TV show on Disney Plus. We're on episode three today with two very special returning guests. And we're going to get down in the weeds of this representation of Medusa, of conflict between the trio. We have so much to talk about. Stick around. Before we begin, content warning. This episode contains mention of sexual assault found in the story of Medusa. Happy Wednesday, everyone. This episode dropped last night. We have two special guests here to talk about it with us. Welcome back, Tani. Glad to be back, especially for some Medusa. Yeah, and why is that? What does Medusa have to do with your life? I just have had an obsession with her, and uh, I've written a lot about her. I've written like four different drafts, thanks to Erica, of a musical potentially about her and her relationship with Athena. So love Medusa. Yay! Our second special guest joining us today is Kyle. Welcome back, Kyle. Hello. Hi, everybody. Kyle Prue here. Very excited to talk about the Percy Jackson television show. In case anyone doesn't remember you from the pod, uh, what do you have to do with YA and also what do you have to do with the media? Oh, what do I have to do with (laughs) YA and the media? I was a YA author uh, as a YA. I was one of them like (laughs) precocious teens. I wrote uh, the Feud trilogy. Uh, I'm still an author, but now I'm 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 a TikToker as well. I'm a, I'm an internet person. I'm here to convert my audience to Seaweed Brain's audience, and I feel yeah. like it'll be it'll be a nice conversion, you know. Exactly. I didn't introduce us. I'm Erica, joined as always by my co-host Carter. Hi, Carter. Hi. It's me. (laughs) Last thing we need to do before we get into the content of this episode is thank some new patrons. As always, I apologize if I mispronounce your name. We have Dalar, Meredith, Angela, Ethan, KS, Clairvoyance, Amanda, Tabletop Notch. That is the group I play Dungeons & Dragons with. Um, Heidi, Nobody Named Dex, Belle, Jake, Irona, Oreo, Allison, and Shannon. Thank you for joining our patron where we have 11 special episodes and we do watch parties on Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. EST, patreon.com slash seaweedbrain. Okay, I want a quick thought on how everybody felt about this episode because it's huge. Here's something that I just want to, because like this is my first time unpacking any of the show with anybody because I watched it all three, all the first three episodes last night. I do love how strong The Mist is. And I like I do think the visual representation of that is hilarious. Like specifically in this episode, Miss Dodds is trying to get through the middle aisle of a bus and she's just like a full on harpy. But to everyone else, she's just some woman. And I think the like the visual of a monster just kind of being like, excuse me, can I just excuse me? Can I I just got to can I just excuse me? Can I I just got to sneak right by you here? It's interesting when you take a book and you like adapt it into sort of like a visual medium there's a lot of things that you have to kind of like reckon with visually for the first time. I don't know why, but the mist just like makes me makes me giggle every time. Absolutely. Tawny, any opening thoughts? Yeah, I just think this episode covered so much ground in terms of some world building aspects, kind of a little bit more fleshed out idea of what monsters are. We get to know more about Thalia and the tree. What's at stake for their relationships? We get like some Persebeth, like first glimpses Mm -hmm. of are they going to be friends or not? Percy literally says, I chose you for this quest because we would never be friends. Mm -hmm. A lot of relationship things churning that we'll get more into later in the season. So very exciting. Yes. 
I think there are two big things that I'm excited to discuss, aside from just like the entire portrayal of Medusa, which is the theme of we are not our parents until we choose to be. And that applies to Percy and Annabeth. But I think it also applies to Medusa. Uh, She just doesn't understand that. And also that in this episode, there is a triple betrayal. There's the introduction of the idea of the betrayal. And then we see three scenes that call on to this. The Annabeth and the Percy one mirror each other like directly, but then we also open up with Luke giving the shoes to Percy, which is his first big I'm going to sell you out moment. So let's start with act one, teaser. We open this episode with the attic. We're going to consult the Oracle. We have a lot of nice ambient noise, still shots of mythic objects that were trophies of heroes quests in the past that do not get explained really in any way. Although we do see the Minotaur horn among them, which is interesting. We don't know what happened to that. It's now up in the attic and we get the prophecy delivered. As you may remember from the books, this is a detail that I think many people forgot because this only happened in The Lightning Thief. But the prophecy is delivered by Gabe. And the books is delivered in the Oracle's voice. In this case, it is very much delivered in Gabe's voice from Gabe as like a misty green illusion that gets spit out of the Oracle's Halloween costumey uh, mouth. I really do like in that moment that he looks annoyed to be there. <laughs> like it, it like it does sort of imply like a little bit of like Gabe like hologram sentience in the sense where he's like, uh, like, all right, fine. Here's your prophecy. His ethereal spirit was like, now I have to like travel all the way to Camp Hapla to tell this to you. You interrupted my poker game, even though we don't get to see the yeah. poker game from the book. <laughs> that sentiment is there. There's the selection ceremony in the dining pavilion, (laughs) open air, circular gazebo, where it looks like they've gathered the head counselors from each cabin, although they don't explicitly say that, right? Yeah. Well, like, Chris is also there, and we know that he's not in charge of anything. Strong campers, as as Kyron says. We, We get, like, a nice slow pan across a bunch of them, and Percy immediately chooses Annabeth. There's a lot of delightful, like very confused, irritated um, <laughs> eyebrow acting from Kyron in, in the scene. Yeah, Glenn Turman's eyebrows do so much acting. It's incredible. They like move individually of one another and they can like change the entire expression on his face based on what angle they are tilting at. Um, and they're always just like a little bit surprised and a little bit uncomfortable at all times. This is interesting because what we talked about in episode two, that Annabeth is not the one showing Percy around. So their relationship is very much not as far along in this show at this point as it is maybe in the book. So how he was going to choose her Mm -hmm. was maybe going to need a little bit of extra juice. Um, And the fact that he says, if a mission required someone to push me down a flight of stairs for it to succeed, you'd want someone who won't hesitate when they do it. And he knows that Annabeth wouldn't hesitate to push him because she's already done it once into the water. And her little (laughs) nod when she gets chosen... Oh my gosh. I, I think it's curious because isn't in episode two, is it Luke who explains that like Annabeth is waiting for the one, the, the forbidden child that would take her on a quest? Yes. Does he tell Percy that? In the TV show, I don't think they say specifically that it's a forbidden child, but it is true that Annabeth is waiting for someone to take her on the quest. Copy. Because I, yeah, I'm like curious. I'm like, is that not part of Percy's decision to take her? Like, it, it's totally like has nothing to do with like what Annabeth wants. Like that's, that's interesting to me. (laughs) Oh yeah. He knows that he is like doing something nice for her. For sure. Yes. So that's one person down and we're ready to have the rest of the selection ceremony from the pick the second quest member. And instead we hard cut to Grover shoveling poop 
you know, uh, the the rousing uh, strings that have been rising throughout the past scene have immediately cut out. He's arguing with a horse about its um, diet because the poop is, I guess, extra bad today. And um, we get the reveal that Percy has chosen Grover to be the final quest member. And specifically, we get the reveal cut in with the last two lines of the prophecy. This is a four-line prophecy. We got the first two lines in the opening scene. And now we have the last two lines, which are about failure and betrayal. You will be betrayed by one who calls you friend, and you shall fail to say what matters most in the end. Which gives us a justification. Like, this whole time, I think the episode is really trying to explain to us Percy's selection choices. And in this case, it's very clear that Grover is here because he's like the one person who is least likely, maybe, to betray Percy. That's the calculus, anyway. I also want to say that is the most demoralizing last two lines of a prophecy that I could possibly imagine. I guarantee you, if I went to see an oracle and it was like, you're going to be betrayed by your friend and you're going to fail to say what matters most in the end, I'd be like, I'm not going. (laughs) It's already over. It's already over. It sucks. It's a good setup. It's a good setup. Grover says that he's going to bring the best snacks. Arian is so enduring. He's so precious. (laughs) I guess that brings us to to Luke's scene. Um, After commercial, we come back to, to Luke entering the Poseidon cabin. There's like this great aerial shot from like behind one of the gigantic like fish prehistoric marine creature skeletons of of like Percy looking really tiny and Luke entering and we have the shoes the iconic wing shoes out of this like really really old looking box I think that it's worth noting that the shoes if you did not take the time to really closely examine them the um like wings are made out of shoelaces interlaced together which is like a lovely lovely little detail wow I just feel like I, I don't know how everyone else felt about this. I, I think that the acting from Luke is giving us everything that we need to set up, everything that we're going to get, specifically in the betrayal and also in terms of Luke's relationship with his father that we haven't gotten that many details about yet, but we have maybe light, light clues is not in the best shape. I think it's like even noted in the subtitles, the little pauses that he takes. He's like saying like, these were gift. And then he like pauses and like clicks his tongue or something. He's like, from my dad. Yeah, it felt so important to me that they like bookended the episode with the betrayal. Luke, again, spoiler, the shoes are the betrayal. (laughs) But um, I think it's like to start with that and then end it with Hermes felt important. I feel like to like, tie back the relationship of the gods with their half-blood children yeah 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 i i also think that like something that's like interesting watching this show because like when you write like a first book in a series you don't necessarily know exactly where it's going and like how hard to like hit your themes etc etc it's really interesting to watch this show with like the benefit of foresight and to like understand that this was like written and created with the benefit of foresight in the sense where mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the like things that are going to be like thematically important are are hit way harder than they are in the first book, which mm-hmm. is what I really, really like got out of this episode more than any other. You know, the 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 understanding that the show is a lot more concise about what it means to say because mm-hmm. it understands that this sort of dialectic between is this structure worth preserving Mm -hmm. it's in it from the jump where i think that the first book in a lot of ways it it has a little bit of like harry potterism in the sense where they're just like man isn't this cool as hell 
you know, like there's a <laughs> lot of like, they spend a lot of time kind of like luxuriating and how like awesome things are. But I really do feel like from the jump here, we are made privy to like the thematic struggle, you know? For sure, for sure. I can't get over how well hit the idea of the betrayal is in this episode because last week we talked a bit about why the prophecy and the start of the quest wouldn't go at the end of the most recent episode but to start it here and to get the prophecy line about the betrayal here Mm -hmm. this entire episode is about who is going to betray me from the start of the prophecy to obviously seeing those scenes with Percy and Annabeth talking to uh, Medusa and Electo, but then knowing as book fans, because Mm -hmm. much of the audience of the show are going to be people who read the books, period, getting to see Luke enact the betrayal. It's like Shakespearean. Like we are participating Mm -hmm. in this like level of dramatic irony to the storytelling because we know what's going to happen. I think for the non-book fans, there is something here that is a little nugget placed about the idea of Luke's betrayal because Percy's thinking about it. Percy is wondering which of the people uh, who might participate in the quest might betray him and that's part of his calculus. And what he says, though, is not that he thinks that Luke might betray him. He specifically says, like, basically, like, I want to go rogue on this quest. Like, I don't know that I care about this lightning bolt. I just want to rescue my mom and I'm optimizing my quest choices for rescuing my mom and that's why Grover is going with me. And I think that that ability to get in there and, like, layer in both, like, okay, like, Percy is trying to, like, pull a fast one here, but, but like, also to plant the seed of the idea that, like, Luke is not, like, 100% on Percy's side and that there are some things about him that are still unknowable, <laughs> I think is going to be good for the new fans to have something fresh to look back upon and say, like, okay, I understand that there is maybe something in this relationship that is unsettled, so it will feel satisfying to me if and when this relationship is perturbed because I feel that it is both established and yet also that there, that Percy and I, the viewer have like a sense that there are aspects of it that might develop in ways that cannot be predicted as cleanly as one might be able to predict the development of say Percy and Grover or Percy and relationships. I can't get over how the last line in this scene is Luke going just take care of each other out there and looking extremely serious. Like I genuinely believe in my heart that he means that because he is thinking about Annabeth, who he genuinely cares about like a little sister. And he's thinking about the loss of Talia and he doesn't want Annabeth to get hurt, obviously going out on her first big quest. And so me thinking about Talia and her death, immediately we cut to Annabeth with Talia's tree, who we know that like her internal monologue is like the same thing, like just take care of each other out there. Mm -hmm. She's having the same emotional process that Luke is having, but she is obviously ending up in a very different place with it than he is. And that jump cut really one of my favorite parts of the episode she looks so tiny next to this tree and she's like touching it and like you can imagine that she's like talking to the tree and like having a moment yeah and i think just like the like opposition of their journey together trying to get to camp and like to safety and like the safety of like talia's tree versus the like opposite journey of leaving camp to go into this into the unknown to this quest where like anything could happen and you might not survive like annabeth tells percy if you follow me you might survive this that that you know survival is not guaranteed and anything can happen for sure it sets up the dramatic stakes and it sets up the impersonance (laughs) percy is such a little snot (laughs) in this scene in a way that is kind of delightful and sets us up for all of the nice little zingers and the general disrespect for (laughs) propriety and existing structures that we will appreciate about him but also in this scene to me mostly and i think for most viewers this will come off as 
as annoying and grating in a way that is important to balance out the character. Um, he, he, what does he say? He says, um, the most powerful being in the universe's best idea to save his daughter was to turn her into a tree. He also says that she met a pinecone's fate in response to Annabeth asserting that Talia met a hero's fate. I almost killed him. I, I almost I almost had to get up into that TV screen <laughs> and tell that boy to learn some respect. Somebody needs to gather that boy. Something like <laughs> funny to me a little bit is like, you know, Percy saying, oh, you know, like the, the most powerful being in the world, like the best idea he had was to turn her into a tree. And it's funny because like, if, if you're familiar with like mythology, Zeus is not like full of good ideas. <laughs> like he's not really known for his uh his ingenuity it reminded me like yeah like of like he like turns into a swan and like turns into a mm-hmm. like a bull and like turn like his his one gimmick is turning things into other things like, of course he would turn <laughs> her into a tree that's all he's ever doing i also feel like like you said carter to balance out his character we've been really seeing this like extra moral, extra kind, extra thoughtful version of Percy. And we will continue to see that as he like understands so much about monstrosity and like all of this because Sally has taught it to him. And like we have this mm-hmm, feeling that like mm-hmm. Sally was a really good mom who was able to instill all these implicit values into her son. But at the same time, I feel like what we're seeing here is that he has spent most of his upbringing in boarding schools. And then <laughs> as like nice and sweet as Sally made him, he also is like really sassy, super annoying, like has a lot of comebacks because he's been bullied his whole life. And that he can hold both of those things is the beauty of his character. Yes, I, it's a it's a broader idea of impertinence. At the same time that he's being rude about Talia's tree, like the underpinning here is a critique of Zeus, right? <laughs> the, the like the generalized disrespect is is him saying that like all static structures and ideas need to be questioned, and they need to be questioned in a way that is like biting and funny. And um, I think that all of those things go together. Versus Annabeth, who will not critique or question the structures and merely says that being turned into a tree was a hero's fate because she implicitly believes the decisions of the gods because that is the way that she structures her life. And this sets us up for Luke. Like, it's all connected. Exactly. Exactly. It's all connected. It's a political spectrum is what it, it is. It is a political spectrum. That's <laughs> the genius of this episode and the and the way that we're structuring this whole thing is that, like, Percy and Annabeth are getting not just personal conflicts, but ideological conflicts that we're going to see from the get-go and maturing as as something to, to deepen and add substance and structure to their personal conflicts and relationship development as we as we proceed out it is funny to think the, about the fact that yeah like annabeth is our like conservative queen it's true like, <laughs> she's like a conservative queen in the way of the nerd who keeps their head down and grinds and is like someday like i am going to be on top she has yeah. that you know like that, that is the kind of conservatism yeah, 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 yeah. army brat energy <laughs> you know <laughs> that as well literally that and then we have grover who yeah. was like all we need is the Green New Deal. Like, if we could all get yeah, along. Hippie. So true. Total hippie. And it's all written by Comrade Rick. <laughs> uh, okay. We should get on the bus. We should get on the bus. We oh, we have this, like, lovely shot as we're leaving of, like, Annabeth, like, running ahead of the boys and the camera, like, pulling back and out to see, like, the sweep of things and how far ahead she is of them because she's, like, not waiting or, like, checking to see if they're okay. Oh, delicious. We're on the bus. We, like, take a little taxi into New York. We see... um. 
Daphne, one of the writer's daughter's art. Daphne! Um, Shout out to Daphne's daughter's art. City. Hanging on the poster when they're getting out of the cab. Isn't that so cute? Oh my gosh. It's very cute. We have a Grover voiceover that's like telling us about how important quests are as we like go to Port Authority and get in a bus where we're sitting in the back by the toilets. Let's all collectively as a group just get it out. That That is not Port Authority. That is, that is a fictional... It is not Port Authority. Real Port Authority looks even worse. Feels even worse is disgusting <laughs> in every single way there was not nearly enough trash on the street this is canada and the, the rest stop as we will see is also canada lush lush tall pine trees lovely um we get to the rest stop on the bus um and annabeth is letting the people know that she is the only one who'll be getting off because percy needs to stay clouded in the fumes of the greyhound bus's movable toilet for the safety of the quest this discussion, again, sets up this clean bridge between the personal conflicts and the personal differences between Percy and Annabeth, which is that, like, Annabeth is, like, a rigid person. Type A, head down, we are going to streamline our operations, optimizer against Percy, who is raucous, rebellious. And, and like, we, we see those things merging into a, a proto-ideological disagreement as well, where, like, Percy is really like, I think we need to vote on this. And Annabeth says, no, <laughs> there is no voting if I am right. <laughs> <laughs> Far be it for me to call this 12-year-old girl an authoritarian, but... Um, it's true. She is. Like, I don't think she would say that that's a good universalizable political philosophy, that, like, there should not be voting. No, but, but like, she's 12, in and this she context, cannot... She she may be behaving a little bit differently than she thinks is an ideal behavior. You know, I don't think that she gets home yeah. to her bunk every night and is like, I did a good job being myself today. I think she is deeply <laughs> uncomfortable with herself. Yes. We also get the consensus song. Grover's attempt to resolve the disagreement here between Percy and Annabeth about who gets to leave the bus is to break into song and start clapping and singing uh, a little ditty that was written by the showrunner and not a full-time professional composer about how we all need to get along. <laughs> I wanted to ask Tani and Erica, is this how uh, musical theater people solve conflicts? Like, <laughs> I would say musical uh, theater people solve conflict more by like getting into an empty parking lot and starting to like form two lines and snap towards one another. Right, 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 <laughs> right, right. right. Okay, because I was watching that and I was like, I gotta, I, I definitely gotta bring that up with Erica because this is how I imagine. <laughs> this is a classic. When I say conflict resolution counselor Grover, he is like getting in there, like the yeah. social worker, the twenty-four-year-old social worker that he is, trying to resolve this conflict. I feel like this is something that they teach them in Seder Protector School, like. <laughs> They sit in a circle in the Literally, woods and they're like, yes. okay, everybody, when your demigods can't get along, this is a great tool that you can use to really listen to both sides. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to make everyone feel heard and respected and nice. <laughs> when you read the books and you like find out Grover's 24, you're like, oh, right, an older age. But when like watching this show at my current age and understanding like what it feels like to be 24, I'm like, damn how is he making this work like it really gives you newfound uh, appreciation for uh for grover's patience i also think grover is on such a different journey in this episode i haven't like fully fit that yes. puzzle piece into where it fits in the overall theme but i'm sure it does i just need to think about it for like two more hours that um he is like really not happy with the fact that they're not getting along and he's trying to get them to get along but it isn't until the end of the episode mm -hmm. where he's like maybe things need to get worse and more uncomfortable before they can get better yes and he is like you need to yell at each yes. other and that is a real point of growth for him and i will say i think maybe the way that it fits into the into the theme is like 
I mean, like, I think that that's almost kind of to a broader extent, Luke's perspective. The idea of Annabeth being a person like, I don't want to talk about anything. I don't want anything to change. I don't want to question anything like Mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. you know, similar to her, you know, kind of uh, conservative, we'll call it viewpoint in so far as like the structure of Olympus goes like as a government. And, you know, I think like it could be the show's way of telling us that like, you know, like you have to break things to make them work again. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like you have to demolish structure in order to, to, mm-hmm. to like move forward with it, you know? So mm-hmm. I think it's possible that that's like, that's how it fits into the larger mosaic. Thank you for that. Noted author, Kyle Prue of the Feud Trilogy. Everybody read the Feud Trilogy. <laughs> Don't really. <laughs> like, do you even want to talk about the Feud Trilogy? Like- no. Well, yeah, it's, it's just like, now it's just like funny backstory. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's funny too, like, there's no Feud Trilogy TV show. So I'll go meet with like book clubs and they'll like ask me questions about it. And I don't even like remember plot lines or characters. Like I don't remember <laughs> you anything just lie. about it. So yeah, someone I remember, I went to a book club and they were like, yeah, well, you kind of have like a, a little bit of like a dark reputation among YA authors. And I was like, I do, why? And they were like, well, it's all the cannibalism. And I what? was like, and they were like, there's a ton of cannibalism in your book series. And I remember like sitting back and being like, damn, I don't remember any of that. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> <I was 17. laughs> you were going through something. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. And they're like, what's cannibalism a metaphor for? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> really couldn't tell you why that's in my kid's book. <laughs> I'm going to force us to push along so that Tawny can talk about Medusa before they have to go to work. We have to get to Medusa. The convenience store. Annabeth is, after being like, chips and soda's okay for you guys, and like full general mode, streamlining everything, when she is alone, Mm -hmm. we get this clip of her looking extremely teeny tiny, looking up at all of the candy, and struggling to choose which big oof candy she wants to pick. She literally looks like the runaway that she probably was when she was seven. And I feel like it evokes that imagery of her when she was little. She looks like she's never seen candy before or something. (laughs) Yes. That was like the last time she was really out of camp. So she's Mm -hmm. like out in the new world for the first time. And she ends up like choosing just like a ton of stuff, which reminds us that even though she is like this rigid war general, she is just a little kid. Oh, and the juxtaposition is so juicy. We start to get the voiceover about Grover explaining like, the monster smelling lore, which is brand new as Annabeth makes eye contact with what we find out is one of the Fury sisters. We also have to shout out Dan Schatz's younger brother who told us that he had a cameo in this scene that got cut. Was he the cashier? He's not the cashier, but he was supposed to be checking out like right before Annabeth, but you don't get to see that um, in this episode. (laughs) There were a couple of cut cameos in this episode, actually. The monsters, they smell inadequacy, shame, a need for glory, etc., which is interesting because I feel like this is setting up their fatal flaws in a way. Yeah. That, like, the monsters can pick up on the worst part of you, um, which is really setting up the sea of monsters. It's setting that up. It's, I think, generally going to be a good storytelling device moving forward that every episode, there is an in-canon, like, in-universe reason for why the monster is going to hammer on whatever theme we're going to be hammering on and, like, whatever personal issue our team is going to be working on. Because literally that monster in-universe is going to be looking for you and finding you when you're working through that problem, right? I'm looking forward to it. Thematic consistency is good. This brings us then to a scene of Annabeth on the bus Noticing Megan Mullally sitting on the side and going to have an invisible parlay. Confrontation. Confrontation. Wartime negotiation with her. Like, she puts on her invisibility hat and sits next to her. Megan Mullally is acting 
down in the scene. This is <laughs> giving me full Miranda Priestly. She's staring straight ahead, doing the least with like slight little head tilts and like a brow furrow ever so slightly once in a while while delivering the like slickest, most gutted, rotted, rude um, lines that you can imagine. <laughs> she begins by saying, if Tolly were better at her job, there might not be a family of squirrels making her their home. Talia cannot catch a break this episode. Talia is just <laughs> catching strays, like, left and right. That, unfortunately, is a really good read. I cackled. Megan Mullally delivered it amazingly. And we get this discussion between Electo the Fury and Annabeth that is almost treating them as equals who are negotiating with each other, which I think... It's fascinating for a number of reasons. It is revealed that they have this history. This is not like anything we've ever seen in the books. It's sort of like a personal side chat between these two people. We see that Electo kind of respects Annabeth. She refers to her as perhaps the most formidable demigod child alive. The tenor of this conversation to me is giving when Republican and Democratic lawmakers talk to each other behind closed doors. Do you know what I mean? Is this an analogy that's working for people where they like inherently think that the other person in the conversation is evil, but they like understand how the other person works. They respect each other and they know that like it is possible for them to talk to some sort of compromise that's going to work for both of them, even though like it's not ideal for either of them and they, they will leave still being enemies you know like this is a, a situation which both of them fully like understand each other and like have a framework for discussion that works for both of them and i think that this is very important to me this contrast is going to set up really well for medusa because electo is someone who is like a fully in universe this is just my opponent and we understand that we're opponents and we're just going to try to each fight each other like two people who think that the other person is evil trying to win whereas medusa is going to really not present within that framework not just be like annabeth you're talented we're gonna see what we like we're gonna each try to do our best and see what we can do and try to overpower the other person does that yeah. resonate I think the word that you used when we were talking with emily and phoebe from monster donut was like the lieutenant she's just an agent doing her job like she may fall into this category of monsters mm-hmm. because she smells you know their inadequacy and they are like oppositional in what they're trying to achieve right now so they have to fight each other but she's just doing her job Mm-hmm. The fact that we have to reconcile as viewers that she falls into the same category as the Minotaur is confusing to us in a in a good way. Mm-hmm. Annabeth like leaves at some point in this conversation because a man like comes and sits down in the chair that we are to assume that she was sitting in, which is a brilliant touch. Um, so she like <laughs> bolts, doesn't even like as soon as it's clear that like you should trade in your friend, like then you can go and finish your quest on your own. She leaves, period. She doesn't betray her friend. So that is the first betrayal denied. Electo attacks, sister joins in, we have two Furies, Annabeth throws the knife, there's a close-up shot of the knife on the ground, incredible setup, they escape out through the window, commercial break, and then we end up in the woods. Disagreement, there is quite a bit of bickering at this point in the book, and I feel like they played it up even more for this episode. Also the lampshading of the forests of New Jersey, that is beautiful, brilliant, stunning, I didn't know they had forests in New Jersey, (laughs) Um, not like that. Lots of shots of like walking, just Percy and Annabeth. Percy being like, this is hard. And Annabeth like, it's supposed to be hard. Percy's like, we should just give up. And Annabeth's like, no. Like, then everyone would think that they made a mistake choosing us. Percy says, I'm completely comfortable with that. Everybody makes mistakes. And Annabeth is like, why are you so afraid of who you are? They are really at like, not even having the same conversation at this point. You know, like that is how yes. far apart that they are. They have no mutual understanding. As no, the basis not at For all. the disagreement that they're having. It is, like, hard to watch. Percy being like, you should just call your mom for help. And us as viewers being like, oh, no. Like, 
you can't do that. You just really overstepped the line. The specificity of Annabeth saying Grover, will you explain to your friend that he needs to pull himself together? Delicious. It's so awkward for so him. So shady. She's not even going to talk to Percy. She doesn't even think that, that that it is worth her time to try to explain to him how wrong he is. He was my protector first. So we finally get this hint that like, we haven't been naming Grover every time we've been talking about the story of Grover, Talia, Annabeth, and Luke making it to camp. But now Percy is like, what are we talking about? Why aren't you telling me everything. Is Grover going to betray me? Now worrying about that in his mind. This is cut off by the smell of hamburgers and we make it to Medusa's place. Okay. Auntie M's garden gnome emporium and cafe is there. It looks like a diner in New Jersey, but next to the diner is this beautiful, like quaint looking cottage home. The very big change, obviously, from the book is that Annabeth immediately notices that this is the place of Medusa, um, <laughs> which yeah. I think is great because like the importance of this scene is not that it's so spooky yuki, where are we? The point of this scene is that yeah. we are going to get to know this person. Yes. She is the central figure of this episode. I agree that it's good to get that out of the way quickly. And I think that also what we're setting up here in this span of like five seconds is an, a nod to everything that was in this scene in the books and wrapping that up and saying like, yes, yes, we know we're going to do something a little bit different. Like, we have the anti-M sign, but we're going to tell you right now that this is not going to go the way that you think it's going to go, and that's okay. I also think it's good for Annabeth's character, because, like, mm -hmm. you know, like, wise girl, if she shows up and she doesn't know what's going on, and, like, all she does is, like, lives and breathes this, like, magical, mytho-magical life, <laughs> and she's like, huh, yeah, this is strange, then, like, it may be a little bit tampers with our, you know, maybe faith in, in, in her, so her just showing up and being like, it's Medusa, everybody, <laughs> like, uh, watch your six, yep. it's very funny. Exactly. This is an important moment very quickly before Medusa walks out, because Electo is having a little conversation with them, where it very much seems like Maybe they're trapped. Electo was like, you should have accepted my offer when you had the chance to Annabeth. So this is giving Percy now the information that um, Annabeth has had some kind of super secret conversation with Electo, which is, of course, making Percy spiral into being like, is Annabeth going to betray me? Because that's what he's been thinking about throughout this whole episode. But then when Medusa walks out, the kids are literally like monkey in the middle between Medusa on one side and Electo on the other. They only have two choices. I think that Annabeth would probably choose to fight them both. Um, <laughs> but Percy says, no, we should go to Medusa, um, specifically because he trusts his mom, who used to tell him stories about her and stories about the monsters, which is beautiful because we saw this. Like, knowing that episode one is setting up this moment right now. Mm -hmm. I was immediately struck by the way that everyone immediately turns away upon her entering. Yes, including Electo the Fury. Yes, throughout the sequence with Medusa, I think leading up to the invisibility hat being put upon her, the theme of rendering her unseeable and invisible and the like loneliness of that mm -hmm. is just like steeped in this episode. Yeah. And just like the way they costumed her with like the the hat with the veil Gorgeous, stunning. Gorgeous. I, I mean, I mean, I think it's wild that even with the veil and her eyes being covered, people still are afraid to look at her. Giving Annabeth the opportunity to have some internalized misogyny along with her <laughs> like traditionalism <laughs> is so important to me because getting to see like a young girl go on this journey of not trusting women. Yeah, not trusting women and then learning how to trust women is very important because not everybody like pops out of the womb a girl boss, you know? And sometimes stories and storytellers 
depending on the perspective of who's telling the story, I think that people these days are a little bit afraid of giving women flaws um, and that that Mm -hmm. greatly detracts from the power and the usefulness of telling a story. This applies to Annabeth and also to Medusa. Medusa says, we all choose who we make our monsters. Annabeth almost doesn't go in. (laughs) The last shot before we cut to commercial is Annabeth just like standing there looking like very, very irritated um, (laughs) and unsure what she's about to do. And Percy, like, when Percy walks up, we should know, like, this is because of this exchange we've just had with Electo, this is the height of the interpersonal conflict and distrust between Percy and Annabeth. Like, Percy says before he leaves, like, you guys do what you want. Like, he's not even sure if we're still on the same quest together, <laughs> basically, at this point. Like, he he is disinvested from trying to convince anybody else of what to do. He's just made a decision for himself, which is that he's going to go see Medusa, and the other two do come with him. Mm-hmm. Should we take an ad break before we go into Medusa's house? Yeah, we need to take an ad break. We'll be right back. Before we talk about this scene itself, which I did write out line by line, we should mention the production design of Medusa's house. I thought this was stunning. We talked a lot last week about the juxtaposition between like the cozy big house and the like gorgeous ethereal stained glass. And I think that that applies here too, where there is this like cozy, like nice looking external house next to this, you know, normal looking diner. And then on the inside, it looks like a palace. I do feel like there are distinctly American detailing that also... I think add to the surrealism, like specifically in the kitchen and around the edges of the dining room, we have some decor elements that are also giving you like American 1950s, almost housewife, mm-hmm. especially when you juxtapose that against this like foreboding, like gigantic, almost Victorian aesthetic. What I think the emotional conclusion you come to is extreme loneliness. Like this is a house that was yes. designed for someone to throw parties and to host guests And, like, she has a gigantic, lovely dining room table that is, like, empty and clearly too large for her. And the lighting is, like, not set up that you could actually host a party there, even though she has all of these, like, lovely, like, candelabras and, um, like, wall mount lamps with, like, intricate glass designs and stuff. Like, it's beautiful, but, like, it, it is not quite right to host people, even though it should be because of her isolation and the fact that no one no one's been inside. Yes. Who is she cooking all this food for? Is anyone going to the diner or is she putting all this food out in her house in the hopes that somebody comes over? But also, how responsible is she for not letting anybody in? You know, this is a question we have. Ooh. We'll shout out Tish Monahan with the costume design. If you want to listen to Tish explain this in her own words, you can go to our press episode. But as a brief summary, she specifically designed this dress to look like a statue. So the idea that while Medusa is surrounded by statues, she is in some way a statue herself. I was very curious about the hat veil, and I thought that maybe that was the idea of the costume designer, but Tish was very clear that it was their executive producers who said, we need a hat veil, and then the whole dress and the rest of the outfit kind of extended out from that, like, idea. Mm -hmm. In our press episode, there's also a clip of John Steinberg, the showrunner, talking about how they were struggling at first to figure out how they wanted to design and create this character, um, because they were trying to make little tweaks, and then ultimately deciding, like, oh, it's not, like, the little tweaks we just need to make her a woman. They were trying to figure out how to design her like a monster and it wasn't feeling right. And then he was like, oh, it's because she's not a monster. She's just a woman. Quote, the worst part about having snakes for hair is that you have snakes for hair. 
<laughs> which is to say that it's very grounded in realism. She has to figure out a hairdo. Like, she, she has yeah. to find, like, a fun updo that goes with her hat. Without, like, bobby pinning so much that the snakes get irritated. So. Yeah, they hate that. So, something interesting that I kind of found about Medusa's, like, character design, but also, like, performance in general, and the way the show is kind of built around her, is something that they used to tell us in theater school is that, like, the really great characters change the energy of the mm-hmm. room they're in. Ooh. And, like, change the energy of the scene. And I think you get that from the first second that Medusa shows up because, like, Electo is this, like, giant monster. Mm -hmm. And Medusa shows up and is very still and is very calm and has a soft yet resonant voice. Exactly. Um, The voice is so important in this performance. And and I also think something else that I got from actually my, like, Greeks class in theater was uh, we had somebody who was playing a king. And um, at the end, there was time to give feedback. And someone was like, I don't think the king had enough presence. And something that the professor said was, um, if the king doesn't have presence, that's on the chorus. That's their fault. Mm-hmm. Because presence is built from the rest of the production outward. Mm-hmm. Like how everybody reacts to him. Yeah. If, if the king doesn't have presence, it's because the chorus doesn't fear the king. Mm-hmm. I, I think like they've done a really good job of like building this scene around her based on the ways that like people react to her, but also mm-hmm. like in the way that, you know, the scene is reacting to her. Like everything really slows to a stop. Absolutely. Yes. It's like we're in statue time where one of the things you also learn in theater school is that if you want to command power, you move slowly. There is nothing that you need to rush about or be loud about. Like if you have the power, you can take your time. So she walks slowly. You can hear her heels like clicking on the ground as she walks out of her home. And then later she's walking in the basement. That is the noise of power. Yes. She has this beautiful regal posture and she has the like soft almost lilting, like sing-songy voice that she's using. I'm Medusa. (laughs) Almost like a mother or a teacher. But it's also not something that is uncommon with, I think, like female villains in fantasy work. Um, I think that we get that kind of like mystical, ethereal voice a lot in an unsettling way. I'm thinking of this character from C, the Apple TV show starring (laughs) Jason Momoa that was also show ran by Dan Schatz and executive produced by John Steinberg. If you've ever seen that, I know I'm like one of four people, but the main female (laughs) villain talks in a very terrifying, like soft voice like this it's a great indication of like the sense that like the biggest threat in the room doesn't have to raise their voice yes you know what i mean because like, people like, would be listening. i guarantee you like every single person who's ever been in a room with medusa ever has been like paying very close you know like peripheral attention mm-hmm. very much kind of like the game of thrones thing like the man who has to say i am the king is no true king medusa doesn't ha- like doesn't have to push for anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not in a while, at least. <laughs> Carter, I think you noted in our outline that there's all these like wide shots. So you can see the rafters, or you can see the whole table. And it also yes. makes her look very small and very lonely yes. as she is seated at it's the far end loneliness. of the table. It's giving stillness. It's giving art because of the way that she, like, she is she, part of her statues. Yes. She's part of the statue. It's framed like a painting whenever you have her. It looks like old-timey portraiture based on how much background there is and how well the background coordinates into her outfit and her posture and her presentation in all of this. Mm -hmm. And, like, along these notes of stillness, like, the camera also, like, slows down. It's not just that we have these wide shots that, like, in a lot of them, there's this one amazing shot as she is delivering this monologue 
where the camera is just slowly, slowly, slowly pushing into her and like showing a little bit, a little bit less of like the dining table and the surrounding dining room as she's like sitting back cross-legged and you're getting her in profile. Oh, so delicious. Yeah. You, you can feel the presence that she has in the room from the those shots. I also, speaking of what you said, Kyle, about how the chorus defines like the power of the king, the way that Annabeth doesn't even sit down at the table is a brilliant detail because we were just outside where we had the three kids like monkey in the middle between Electo and Medusa and we were just in the woods where Grover was like monkey in the middle between Percy and Annabeth and now Grover and Percy are monkey in the middle between Annabeth and Medusa so there's all this <laughs> conflict going on throughout the episode should we talk about the dialogue <laughs> Yes. I will not read out the entire scene because you can just watch the episode, um, as I'm sure many people have done several times already by the time you're listening to this. But there are very specific choices of language that you can just tell that there's a lot of detail and specificity in what she says here. Because these episodes are so short, the economy of language is very important. Mm-hmm. There's all these like important words that come out in the scene, like grudges, bullies, invisible, you know, all of that, like these things that we've been thinking about. You're concerned I would hold a grudge against you, Annabeth, simply because you are a daughter of Athena. Well, you shouldn't be. We're not our parents after all. And you and I might have more in common than you think. This is also where we get the language that she is not a monster. She is a survivor. Do you want to talk about the Variety article? This is huge. Um, Yes. So Variety released an article interviewing several of the people who worked on the show, including Rick and Becky and John Steinberg, um, where they talked about adjusting this character. Um specifically because Medusa has become a cultural symbol for survivors of sexual assault. Part of this is because of the statue Luciano Garbati, Medusa with the head of Perseus. There's all kinds of writing about this statue, um, and we'll link some stuff in our show notes. Um, We also talked about this on our (laughs) way, way back in the Queering the Classics episode, which Tawny guested on that you can go back to. But it's no secret that the myth of Medusa is a story involving sexual assault and that that story has become important to many people. And so that language of using the word like I'm a survivor, the Variety article um, talks about how this was able to nod to that without making it the focus because this is a kid's show and that's maybe not something that's appropriate to dive into. It's also Medusa is not the lead person in the story. But I think this is a really great example of how you nod to something and honor a story when it's not the main story. Mm -hmm. Because I think this is something that writers struggle with a lot, especially... Like, if you're writing and there's a character whose background is not your own, people don't know if they should shy away from it or if it's their job to dive into it. But I think this is a good example of highlighting it without somehow making it the main focus. I don't know. How do you guys feel about that? I agree. I also think that, yeah, like, in the same way that, like, Rick's perspective on a lot of things have changed since he, you know, like, wrote the first books, our culture has taken a lot of steps forward insofar as like understanding of mythology you know like if you think about like in this variety article it says like he's a 12 year old boy in 2005 like Mm -hmm. i think our our understanding of mythology used to be pretty surface level you know and i think like the percy jackson books like yeah like the majority of the first book is kind of just them like almost like awing at it I think a lot of people have pushed this forward. I'm thinking of like Madeline Miller and Emily Wilson (laughs) reinterpreting these stories and like bringing them forward with like a lot more like understanding of the humanity involved. I think that it was like absolutely imperative that they take a more considered eye to this, you know, part Mm -hmm. of the story because in the old one, yeah, it's just like spooky snake lady and Mm -hmm. they just behead her. That's still present here. 
Uh, but I do think like the cultural context, it's absolutely unavoidable. Yeah, that they set up this moment with a scene in episode one and that instead of shying away from it, I feel like they brought this to the forefront mm-hmm. without Medusa taking over the entire story. Mm-hmm. Going back to the dialogue, Medusa talking about how she doesn't like bullies, that definitely pricks Percy's ears up as somebody who has been bullied um, and has a conversation in episode one with Grover about whether or not to stand up to bullies. Mm-hmm. But then also as she starts to talk to Annabeth and say, you know, I wasn't just like you, I was you. She describes for Annabeth how she worshipped Athena and how Athena paid zero attention to her. She doesn't use the word invisible here, but she uses the word silence. And that is too is just so on the nose for Annabeth, who obviously we find out um, in the woods doesn't have the kind of relationship with her mom that Percy thinks she does. Yes. But there's a great line in the musical, the Lightning Thief musical, where Annabeth is like, the only gift my mother ever gave me was a hat that makes you invisible. And you can see Annabeth's worldview kind of like shattering or like starting to be shaken a little bit by what Medusa is telling her. Yes. Annabeth's replies start to get more like aggressive, didactic in a way that reveals that she is moved far afield of where she is comfortable and where her thoughts normally are to the point where all she can say is just these platitudes of like, my mother is always just, that is not what happened. You are a liar. Yes. The breakdown to, to these sort of like childish, almost playground retorts is where I think we get Annabeth in a position of discomfort and yes. where her, her thought process has been disrupted and her worldview has been um, perturbed to the point where she yes. can't engage anymore and looks visibly like flustered all she can do is try to yes build up her like her her armor and to try to not not think that much about what's being said anymore this line where annabeth says what my mother did to you wasn't a gift it was a curse this is the line that makes me think of her hat because her invisibility hat is supposed to be Mm -hmm. a gift from her mom but really Mm -hmm. isn't that her mom cursing her to be invisible and also knowing what we know from the book lore thank you chalice of the gods that it like physically pains annabeth every time she puts the hat on it's not a gift, it's a curse. And for her to have to say those words out loud and then like so work so hard with so much emotional effort to like not think about it, you know, to not question yeah. it and to just keep her walls yes. up, you can see how hard she's working. <laughs> yeah, just to say like, like I, I don't know how anyone with any understanding of mythology could be like, oh, my mother is always just... Mm-hmm. It's like, damn, you must have missed, like, most of it. The Kool-Aid they're feeding them at Camp <laughs> like, Half-Blood, you know? Well, well and that's my question, too. I'm wondering, like, very much, like, what uh like resources they're working with (laughs) you know what i mean you know like mythology is like interpreted and reinterpreted time and time and time and time again Mm -hmm. so i'm you know like i'm very curious like how they're educating themselves and i'm wondering which translations they're using of the old works happening yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) they don't have to use translations because they can read greek right oh that's true yeah isn't it funny thinking about how these are 12 year olds that exist in a world where rick riordan doesn't exist so it's like how did they learn about mythology yeah yeah, nobody knows nobody knows shit about mythology because (laughs) (laughs) I, i think that it really is like motivated reasoning for annabeth like she thinks these things because it is a way that she can convince herself that the life that she's living at camp is is good and productive and meaningful meaningful and that the relationship we ha- that she has with her mother is okay because like if her mom is always right then that must mean that the estrangement that they experience must be for a reason i i think that this is i think a frequent 
I, I think this is the thing uh, that a lot of people experience in spirituality and a lot of people experience in parental relationships that like around this age is when you start to have to ask questions about like when your parents can be wrong about things and like how evil can exist in the world. And, um, you know, all of these things that she is trying to not mm-hmm. have happen right now as she is in a potentially stressful situation with someone who may wish her harm. Yes. The line <laughs> that full triggers Medusa is so mm, specific. Medusa says the gods want you to believe that, that your mothers are just, that they are infallible, but they only want what all bullies want. They want us to blame ourselves for their own shortcomings. And as she's saying this, like Annabeth is interrupting her and saying, that's not what happened. You are a liar. And this is where it's like, uh uh-oh, like the air goes out of the room. And that is such a specific word, you know, in the same way Mm -hmm. that survivor evokes what happened to her. I think that liar, for Medusa, as she is portrayed in the show, to hear that from a young woman of color, like pointing at her and saying, you're a liar and I don't believe you. That is such a brilliant way for the character to turn and say, okay, that's it. She physically turns, takes the beat. You can hear her like breathing before she changes tactics. And then she says, something is burning. Please. (laughs) Something is burning. Maybe our sisterhood is burning. Uh, Our trust of women is burning. Society is burning. Before we leave the dining room, I also wanted to say and also ask you guys if you noticed when she's like, do you know the story of how I came to be this way? I do. And Grover is like, I do. And she says, do you? And then these bells chime. Yes. Like, it's like yes. there's a grandfather clock somewhere off to the side and they start dinging. And I was like, whoa. I mean, it works effectively to like build the tension. But I was also like, could we overanalyze into that sound design? Like, why would the clock start chiming here? Is it just reminding us? Of the urgency. Reminding us of the urgency. The clocks of the bell also bring the instrumental score back into the scene. Mm. I have a dumb thought. Please. I was going to say, like, kind of almost like time is Mm. up. Like, it's almost like Mm. a little bit of like a. No, I think that's true. It's also like, I think it's like a reminder of awareness in the general sense where I, and I've worked with sound designers before where. We had a moment uh, in in uh, my like web show Rabbit where we wanted our character to have a moment where he realizes he's in a dangerous situation, and so in the scene I just like reacted. I just like realized in the moment I was in a dangerous situation, but it wasn't reading. So the sound designer was like, "I'm gonna have someone drop silverware mm-hmm. in the kitchen," mm-hmm. and so like he layered into the sound mix that someone had dropped a tray of silverware as the realization's mm-hmm. happening. And it's a moment where you as the audience becomes aware that there's other things happening yes. in the room. Oh like, like that, God, like that's so cool. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like it's used to, to like, I think like a really like intense effect here. Like it's, it's very, mm-hmm. it's very on the nose, but I think that is yeah. something sound mixers do a lot is when they want you to have a moment where you're like, I need to ha- gain a better awareness of what's Heightened awareness. Like, in yeah. The scene. Yeah. You like, yeah. So it was really interesting that he was like, I do this a lot. Like he was like, we're in a restaurant. Let's have some <laughs> drop a plate of silverware in the other God, room. that <sighs> is so cool. Shout out to Mert, Set, and Kaya. Yes. <laughs> um, my sound mixer. Oh God, that's cool. I'm so glad that I asked that ridiculous question and you had such an actual <laughs> answer for it, Kyle. From here, obviously something burning. Medusa goes into the kitchen to get the food. Percy follows her. At this point, like he can speak directly to her because her back mm-hmm. is facing him, which just from a purely directing, oh, like blocking standpoint, sick. it was great to give, you know, to, we had to set all these scenes up in a way where they could have a conversation without looking at each other. So this is just another way for them to do that. Yeah, she's centered facing the stove cooking as you have this wide shot of the like really like bizarre, but kind of like beautiful, but also kind of like housewifey and homey, but also like weirdly palatial kitchen. 
happening around her. Also, she might be the witch from Hansel and Gretel. It's all there. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where we get that mirror to the bus scene with Electo where she offers to Percy to, like, take care of Annabeth and also Grover, Mm -hmm. but mostly Annabeth, for him. Before she gets a chance to get an answer out of him, he leaves. Exactly in the same way that Annabeth does. We don't even know when in the scene he leaves because we are focused on Medusa when it happens. But as soon as we turn back to Percy, he's gone. And that is that is a little bit of Percybeth is the greatest love story ever told for you right there. (laughs) That they don't even know in this moment that they behaved the exact same way when given an opportunity to betray each other. I think, yes. That's Shakespeare. (laughs) Like that is. It's a good parallel to set up. Fully original parallel to set up. And I think the one other thing that we have to mention here in this scene is this is where we get your mother and I, we're like sisters in a way, targeted by the same monster. She says this to Percy about Sally and about Sally's relationship to Poseidon. This is so fascinating. We get, again, like the repeated use of the word monster. We're like hammering that home. I I feel like what we're getting in Medusa's description of her relationship to Poseidon is a situation that we'll read as a very, very clear allegory to people who are, say, like over the age of 18. And to younger people, I think you will still get these glimmers of, like, I think a 12-year-old watching the show would still be like, oh, I wonder what she means by that. Like, why, what would be wrong in her relationship to make her feel that way? And why is everyone reacting the way that they are to her having a relationship that was bad? It's the same way that Percy feels. And Percy is also going through those thoughts where he like, his reaction isn't like, I don't believe you. He said like, I don't think my mom feels that way, which leaves us all on the same page that like something probably that something wrong happened in Medusa's relationship to Poseidon, which is not something that we have treated as fully in, I think, other iterations of the story, and particularly in the books. Um, Can I say something so ridiculous about Medusa's theme that because it comes <laughs> back in here? The cello, like, we're assuming mm-hmm. it's a cello. Right, Carter? Probably. I guess it could be a viola. It's probably a cello. Probably a cello. The, the deeper string instrument, it, like, slides all the way up, and then it slides in, like, a set of three all the way down. (laughs) And this is very crucial to me and indicative of her character because you think we're going to sympathize with her, we're on the way up, like, we're feeling more hopeful about her, like, we're going to understand what happened to her. But then she makes a choice to, like, descend and to be, in a way, monstrous, even though she doesn't think she's being that way. Because she has allowed, she has chosen to hurt other people in um, circumstances where she probably isn't right to do so. She is acting like a monster herself. Um, and that takes her down down into the depths. And the horns come in. It's the cycles of abuse. It's the cycles of abuse. Exactly. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to say that like this show, this episode of TV is doing some grand work to say that like <laughs> victims of abuse are abusers. That's not at all what we're saying. It's just that in this particular case, how we position her as somebody who is working against our goals. Um, We see this woman who is very complicated, who has had a complicated history and complicated experiences, make very complicated choices. And that to me is the most important thing that like she is not two dimensional. She feels like a real person um, and that we don't shy away from her being evil. Like (laughs) you say, Carter, it's it's about women's wrongs as well as women's rights. Yes. Okay. That takes us to Act three, the climax, final culmination. We're down in the basement, national treasure style. I also like want to say it's like the Goonies where, you know, you descend down yeah. into the like brown and golden basement. Indiana Jones. And the fire is lighting the pathway. Indiana Jones. The one where they're looking for the Holy Grail. 
which I think is Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and like the last scene in the movie, I think is that they like put the Holy Grail in like a gigantic like government uh, like storage facility and they keep zooming out and out and out and out and you realize that like this is the best hiding place for it because no one knows what the US government has hidden in its large, large basements of basements of basements. Um, Which is so real because if you listen back to our press episode, you can hear production designer Dan Henna talk about how they designed this giant basement based off of a military bunker, essentially. So that the idea is that you have no idea how long it goes on for. Yes. It looks like the Chin Emperor's tomb also. If any of you know, you think about That's the Terracotta Warriors. <laughs> Wendy Wu Homecoming Warrior was my first thought when they went down into this basement. Anyway, it looks stunning. The shot that they have of the fire slowly like creeping down the stairs to then light up all those things and then you get the humongous sense of scale. Iconic, amazing, beautiful. It's such a brilliant touch that outside, when before we get into Medusa's house, before we hear her story, we see all of the monsters and the scary people that are outside of the house. Mm-hmm. And then when we come into the basement, we see all the normal people. Yes. And all of these people who she has petrified for one reason or another. Because I yes. think it works on two levels. Like the obvious, like, outside she's a monster, inside she's a person. Mm-hmm. But then also outside... I think it works in the reverse way. That's like, oh, she is petrifying monsters who are out to get her. But then when we get deeper and we really start to understand the character, we know that she is also petrifying people who probably were no threat to her. Yes. But she is no longer in a place where she can distinguish really what that means. She can't distinguish it. She, like, I think she understands her new power in some ways, but not in others, you know? Like, I think she mechanically understands it, but she doesn't, like, emotionally or, like, ethically process what it means for her to have power over other people in this way. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in this scene as she not only like has all these statues there, but in the way that she talks to these 12 year old children that she like feels comfortable just meeting out consequences because the, the I think emotional impact of that doesn't, doesn't really process for her. Yeah. I also think on a third level, it makes us question the appearance of those statues. Because if we're trying to ask ourselves, mm-hmm. like, not everyone who looks like a hero is a hero, not everyone who looks like a monster is a monster, I'm like, why am I judging monsters on the outside, humans on the inside, when really we know that there isn't much of a difference um, aesthetically yeah. between those two things? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Mechanically, what happens, you know, you watch the episode, Grover tries to use the shoes, the plan is foiled. Aw, shucks, Grover moment. It, like, kind of works. I don't know. Like, he comes back in at the end, crashes into her, and helps us do what we need to do. It literally does end up working. It's giving classic Grover doing a distraction, which is something that happens in the Chalice of the Gods. <laughs> um, we can see these two stories intertwined here. Medusa is giving full strut. You can hear the heels clicking on the floor of the basement. You can finally the see hair her eye down. makeup, which is gorgeous. Her incredible smoky eye, <laughs> the light blue uh, scary contacts. <laughs> it's Very giving like Australia. You know when people make those TikToks about like Australian shepherd dogs and they're like, please put contacts on your dogs <laughs> because those eyes are scaring me. Yes, she delivers the final crux of her villain monologue because, of course, we have now turned. First, it was Annabeth calling her a liar, and then it was Percy abandoning her and choosing his friends over her. And she says, we are not our parents until we choose to be. You two have chosen. A daughter of a self-righteous mother who chose self-righteousness for herself. And you, Percy, you could have shown your father what it means to stand up for someone you love. You could choose to save your mother instead of doing your father's bidding. If neither of you will help teach these lessons, perhaps you should be the lessons. When I ship your statues to Olympus, maybe that will get my point across even better. Stand up. Let's have a look at you. Wow. You know, I don't know who exactly word for word typed out this monologue, but I'm just going to say, Daphne, if it was you, you are our queen. (laughs) You. (laughs) That is eatery. It, it fully encapsulates all of Medusa's worldview. It encapsulates the actual 
tensions that the characters themselves are experiencing. It captures like the literal quest mechanics. Like what are the choice points that we have remaining to us? It feels fully in Medusa's voice that she is scolding, that she is, I mean, like the, the gag of Medusa is that like this violence was done, done upon her by Athena. Athena was her first love, if you will. But this is like also the kind of thing that Athena probably would say, right? Like the, 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 ideological the the intellectual imprint of that first experience is clearly still resonating here because i feel like this is probably roughly what athena would say when she cursed medusa right like some version of like i'm gonna tell you how it is like these are the mistakes that you have made and for these mistakes i will have to teach you um what is correct it, it is giving like true oh self-righteousness God, point. um i am the arbiter i am the judge realness she yeah. is Mothering. And that's what it really comes down to a lot of these villains. It's 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 hypocrisy. It's saying like you are self-righteous and you've chose self-righteousness when she, of course, herself is choosing self-righteousness in this behavior. Yeah. Oh <laughs> gosh, it's tough. Everyone is a bad guy, and there's no way, no, no way, way to, to know, know who's, who's the, the worst. worst. Karma is gonna come for all of us. And I hope, and I hope, I just hope she comes for you first. That was my top played song on Spotify this year. Everybody stream You First from This Is Why from Paramore. Yes. I also want to shout out like the stand up Let's Have a Look at You is brilliant. Like right because of course this is her like kill line. Mm-hmm. This is her kill shot. She's literally like, let's have like, a look at you. She is going to end him. For your statue. <laughs> yeah. But stand up Let's Have a Look at You. She's an artist. Yes. It's not like also like stand up Let's Have a Look at You. It sounds like a mom like getting her son ready to go yes. off to school. It is not the like violence that we would expect from a monster. But at the same time, because it is like not violent for her to do this, I think that she gets to be more emotionally divorced from the consequences of her actions. I agree. I agree. Yes. That there is no blood and guts and swords involved Mm -hmm. for her, which is, oh my God, going back to this idea of like abuse and like, like it doesn't always look the way that you think it's going to look. Mm -hmm. And just because there are no blood and guts doesn't mean that it isn't incredibly violent. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. I, I yes. This, Jesus Christ. <laughs> this this brings us to the 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 final or well the 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 scene where they behead her, which I think I, I know that we said we've done a lot of important character work on Medusa. I think that the thing that is another layer to the challenge that is basically orthogonal is that you cannot kill Medusa the same way. We I think it is an implicit. Imperative. From a storytelling perspective. For every adaptation that we need to, that like, if you're going to do a fresh version of the story of Medusa, like, we need to find an original way to kill her. Assuming that you're going to kill her. And the way that they did was so smart with using Annabeth's invisibility hat. Because, of course, this is, we've seen the hat all episode. It, like, has factored in very prominently. We know that this is going to be something of meaning for her. It sets up the next conflict about how we're going to dispose of Medusa's head perfectly. And the visual I think is very striking of like Annabeth like appearing, her disappearing, yeah. and then like a slash into the air. And it like tightens the original retelling of the myth of Perseus and Medusa because he is like his two like magic items that yes. he's supposed to use to help him go off Are and the kill shoes? the Gorgon Medusa is the helm of darkness and the winged sandals. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh wow. Oh it's great. <laughs> that's just how you that's how you do an adaptation. That's how you revise something that you wrote in 2005, in 2023, and you make it even better. Invisibility hap, head slice, the head becomes the trophy. Some delightful hand acting from Walker as he carries the invisible head it's up the stairs with Annabeth. High school improv. <laughs> Annabeth and Percy go upstairs to use the head to petrify Electo, and we have what is going to live in the memory 
of fans as one of the most incredible shots in the series, I think, which is Annabeth standing behind the closed door, which is a green, like majestic gate screen and watching Percy through the gate full on as he petrifies Electo in her mind here. You know, if I was Annabeth, I would be like, one, look at this boy achieving something that I am not like I had to give him the head to do this because this is his quest, not mine. Two, why? What mm-hmm. are we talking about with this betrayal thing? Yes, we need to ad- address that. What am I being lied to about his mom, etc.? Um, and then also this fascination and this respect, mm-hmm. in a weird way, growing for this person who is so different from her and approaches situations mm-hmm. so differently from her. Yes, but they've just gone through this very like terrifying experience together, and they're starting to bond. And she is maybe starting to not only be fascinated by him, but like let- respect him. Yes. And find him interesting. And these things are all playing so clearly across her face. And there are also these additional... I think that we are starting to see... I, I To me, there are like the edges of like a horror in her face that she, after all of this discussion with Medusa, I think is like not 100% convinced that what they've done is the right thing. And this is maybe the first time she's yes. forced to actually reckon with the consequences of her actions. Like she is looking at the beheaded... Like at the... Like, you know, like the severed head of a woman who, like, was basically, like, relegated to monstrosity by her mother, being used to, like, murder someone else who she just had a conversation with. And, like, you know, they they were opponents. And I think that she's not, she's not sitting there being like, I think we did the wrong thing. But I think that she is, for the first time, really visually, in all in one place, like, seeing the consequences of her actions and, like, what it means to fight monsters as as something that has losses, as something that has like negative impacts upon the world, as well as perhaps positive impacts that we might consider to be worthwhile in the scheme of things. You know, I, there's that. I think that there's mm-hmm. like a, a little bit of like a horror at Percy. I think that this is to me, like this was the first scene where when I was like with, there with her, like standing behind the bars watching her because that's how the, it's shot. It's from, it's a shot of her looking, it's a shot head on of her behind the, the, the gates and a shot from her perspective of like Percy, like far away petrifying electo and making the pose of the perseus statue like holding up the head at the angle like arm fully extended before he sort of like you know like pulls it back like maybe stumbles a little bit loses his balance and like looks like a 12 year old again but there's that one moment where i think we are with her being like this boy is like powerful in a way that is maybe a little frightening and maybe (laughs) um has huge consequences and like she keeps saying this line that like you don't even understand how you play into all this like we are part of something so great. Like you don't even understand, like, why are you afraid of who you are? Like she's trying to say, like you need to step into the, the weight that you have in the world and the power that you were able to wield. And this, I think is her being like, wow, I don't know if I actually understood the power that he could wield. Exactly. Until this moment. I also don't know if I understand how I fit into all of this now. Yes. It's giving that it's giving gender because she like, it's not just like a gate. It is like the screen door of a house. She is literally in the she home. She's in the home. She is in the home. Watching him do something that she had to support and facilitate from behind the scenes. Yes. <laughs> it's iconic. Oh, God. From there, we're down in the basement. We have this final scene where we have to come to an agreement about A, what to do with Medusa's head, but also to resolve all of the conflict that has been taking place between yes. the trio during this episode. We have to talk through all of the almost betrayals. Yes. We we sh- we get back to the basement on Grover, like, in full tears. Arian, I dare you to stop acting down because <laughs> this, this boy has been acting down. He is 
looking up into the eyes of his uncle Ferdinand. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that they kept that in because I think it's easy to let Grover's plot in this book kind of fall to the wayside. But all of this has to be established in order to set up the Sea of Monsters, Monsters. we know the writers are working on. Even though it hasn't been officially greenlit yet, everything is in service of what's to come. Watching Grover wipe his tears away to try and, you know, go be a proper chaperone for these kids, I was like, that's giving 24 years old. He was like, you don't need to see me cry. It's whatever. I'll deal with it in my own time. Exactly. But we need to resolve this. It's the hint of my own journey, but like... For the kids. Let's put that away for now. For the kids. Um, He's giving dad right now. Um, And this is where he has his line about Maybe things need to get worse before they can get better. Yes. I think I'm paraphrasing that. But yeah. that was really important to me because I think that also is a tenet of what we are doing in this adaptation, yes. which is that we are trying to acknowledge Medusa as and the myth of Medusa as a fictional story in which abuse took place and that it is uncomfortable implicitly to do that and that that kind of work makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But it is important to make things a little uncomfortable before they can get better. I think he says maybe things need to get a little upsetting. That's the word. There we go. And Grover, having Grover deliver that line is so special. Yes. To me. Because <laughs> he's like the voice of, in many ways, the voice of reason. He's the, vo- he, he's the conflict resolution here. And I think it's it's important for him yeah. to be like, okay, conflict resolution is not just, it's not just saying nice things about each other. It's not just building, like, it's not to di- not to say the consensus not wouldn't have worked, but it's not about ignoring things. It's like, in fact, like in this moment, like he has to like the way that he upsets people specifically is by providing additional contextual information that they're not having and that they are both too proud or confused or like locked into their own perspectives to provide. And then just pausing to like literally say, like, be empathetic. Like, I've given you this information. Now yep. imagine what it feels like. For the other person. Which is what we're doing as viewers with Medusa in this episode. It is too clean. I can't <laughs> handle it. Every single layer uh, layers so yes. well. The themes are theming. The connections are connecting. And specifically, like, the contextual information for both of them is about their mothers. Like, he's saying, like, Percy, your relationship with your mom is different, so you may not get this. But Annabeth has a weird relationship with her mom where, like, it's distant but reverent. And, like, for her, what that means is that you need to respect this hat. And then the other way, he's like, Annabeth, you have a weird relationship with your mom and your dad. So, like, you might not emotionally understand what it means, like, for your mom to be gone and then to be back. But you need to think more about that. (laughs) Percy and Annabeth are able to resolve here. There's so much I could say about Leah's performance and how perfect it is that it would take us four hours to get through. But her moment like when Percy's like let's leave the invisibility cap and send it off to Olympus and you can feel how much that hurts her she is having Annabeth is having her GERD moment here her (laughs) intestinal problems are acting up when Percy says I'm gonna get rid of your hat but because she is a good general she will not say anything yeah and we just move on from it but you can see Grover has to intervene yeah oh it's so good. Yes, literally telling both of them what they need to hear. It's that moment when your therapist has to read you a little bit. Yes. Um, yes. After you've been complaining. That's literally what it is. Um, <laughs> and he wheels it on Percy. And he also yeah. is like, Percy, 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 like, I know you're you're still lying about something. Like, I'm going to hold you to account. And Percy is feeling a bit attacked. And then we get the last two lines of the prophecy mm-hmm. about betrayal. And we finally, which is what we've yeah. been looking for. Grover's right. Like, we've, we, Percy's been acting weird because this whole time he's been staring at the other two of them. He and didn't being tell like, people. Yeah. I'm thinking about betrayal. I'm thinking about betrayal. How does this factor into everything? And now we have, well, I guess betrayal. And then the last line, which is about the dual, the dual missions, right? Like, implicitly, it's about the dual mm-hmm. missions. You'll fail to say what matters most in the end. Yes. Yeah. 
But now we're all on the same page. And now we're all on the same page. Which is great. We get the final reveals. I think we need to read those lines about the two, two attempted betrayals. Literally, the Persebeth of it all. Or, okay, I, okay. first we need the line that like after he, after he delivers the last two lines of the prophecy, he says, which I think Tani mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I chose her because I couldn't imagine we'd ever be friends. And then we cut to Leah looking like stone face still, like slight head tilting up to him. Oh, it is quite heartbreaking, actually. She does she does it, and then there's, like, the one moment where you can see her face break, and she blinks, and she, like, looks away, and then the camera cuts away from her before you, like, see her actually getting emotional. It's, oh. Just because she's acting that way doesn't mean she isn't a girl with feelings. I swear to God. And, yeah, Percy fully breaks down. He doesn't know who to trust. He feels so alone. And then he has to reckon with the emotional consequences of what he just said. And then Annabeth, by way of response to this, offers up, the explanation of the attempted betrayal. The lines are, Electo offered to help our quest if I gave you up to her. What did you say? I killed her sister. Beat. Inhale. Medusa offered to help me save my mom if I turned on the two of you. And what did you say? I cut off her head. That's Persebeth. The writer's room knew what they were doing when they did that. They knew. They said, we're creating a bond that will outbond every other relationship you have ever seen in media. They're beginning something. They're beginning something that will grow, that will last. They are so much of this is about setting up foundation. Foundation that will continue to grow and build and be able to have enough ideological conflict and interpersonal difference as well as interpersonal sameness and respect to be able to carry us through years of development and growth and challenge and (laughs) collaboration absolutely the last thing we should say about this is that (laughs) we get you percy packaging up the head in the box as annabeth and grover stand on the other side of the table and i know that this is absolute conspiracy theory nonsense but the fact that they are now in a triangle instead of one person (laughs) being in the middle of the two of them is very important it's literally true they are all working together oh my god triangles are the strongest shapes every other time we've seen the three of them they've been in a line or like a staggered line that is essentially oh a triangle, God. but let's just ignore that. They're in a triangle here as they are standing all around in like a little circle around the box. Percy's on the other side of the table. And um, Annabeth and Grover are like, you can't do that. You can't do that. Like, you don't understand. Like, you can't do this. This is bad. And Percy being a little He is so persassy. And saying, I don't understand. <laughs> And he's like, it's like watching like a little kid like peer pressure their friends into like jumping off of a cliff or like doing something stupid. And it works like, this time. This is the you know, first time fine. he has peer pressured them into being impertinent specifically and like convince them a little bit of his worldview that they're taking things too seriously and that sometimes they need to be disrespectful in order to respect themselves and to like go on their emotional journeys as 12 year olds. Yeah. The fact that Annabeth literally says it's impertinent and Percy says, I am impertinent. Fan service. I. <laughs> full-on yes, blonde Persassi is here. <laughs> Deal with it. Deal Hands on the with hips. Persassi is here. Um, <laughs> and Grover and Annabeth are having extreme GERD. And yeah. uh, Percy, I think sends the head so off. Cute. Oh, the way that he, is this, there's something about the way that he packs up the box where it's like a little bit too big for him and he's like working really hard <laughs> to me. Yeah, he's so, so tiny. <laughs> That's the impertinence. It's because Um, they're small children that, like, you can feel the impact of this. The small children who are like, this is wrong. 
everything that's happened today is wrong. We shouldn't have had to deal with this. And we need to remind people that this is wrong, that everything today was the result of people making bad choices who are supposed to be better than us. Absolutely. From here, we have the final little almost post-credit scene, even though it comes before the credits. Oh, where? Oh, it has where? the energy of a post-credit it scene. Is. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's here. <laughs> um, he's going to the Empire State Building, which we briefly saw earlier in the episode. He's getting in the elevator. We get the little detail of the key turn that opens the up turn. the 600th floor. They do the slow pen he, off course, his body to the face. And we knew he was going to sing, and he hums. And <laughs> wait, what is the song title? We need to know what the song title is. Arthur's Theme, Crisscross. Classic Empire State Building semi-easy listening music um, as he walks onto the Olympian causeway and the bright light is shining onto him. We don't get to see Mount Olympus, which is like a great little like kind of cliffhanger moment Mm -hmm. as he says, you guys are never going to believe this. With this look of like kind of like sinister or impertinence himself, Uh um, which is great because we don't know exactly how this relationship is going to play out yet. He's a trickster and you can see that in his face. And you also see that like, he, it's like he has some respect, in my opinion, yeah, for what Percy has done. I would agree. Um, which is a really great way to set up that relationship if it's going to go any way like it did in the books where he is sort of aiding Percy and he is mm-hmm. sympathizing with Percy. But at the same time, he's still a god and he still made some mistakes. Um, also, the choice to end this episode with Hermes when Luke was at the beginning of it. Yes. Oh, book ending it. Sandwiching all of these Sandwiching, people as like, the monkey Luke in the middle. And Percy and, or, between... sorry, Luke and Hermes and ideas about impertinence and respect and like what the gods owe us specifically in that relationship. Unbelievable. And then we so go out to the credits with the song, which I heard playing from my neighbor's house. I don't know if they can hear me. The soundproofing between our two houses is not good. They were watching the show earlier today and they were living. So <gasps> You should talk to them. Let's celebrate that. You should go over and knock on their door. I, heard, I literally like, I was You like, should invite them to our like, watch party next week. this is... I think this is the show. And the way that I could tell for sure was that this song played. This song is playing over the credits. <laughs> so I don't know if our listeners have noticed by now, but we have been recording for such a long time that both Kyle and Tawny had to quietly, gracefully, kindly step away to go to work. Um, but before Kyle left, we were able to do our final closing questions with him. So I'm going to play those clips now. John Steinberg, the showrunner, spoke about how they're making four shows here. One, a show for kids. Two, a show for adults. Three, a show for fans. And four, a show for people who've never read the books before. Um, So how do you feel that this episode succeeded in those four different angles of storytelling? Um, I think it's it's effective as a story for kids because um, it replaces some of the uh, harder and rougher words with words that are sort of like easy to understand and interpret by our young characters, like bullies, for instance. I think it does a good job of, uh, you know, like making the message like palatable yet universal. Um, Because I just think these these problems just scale up and get larger. And it's only when you're an adult that you understand like the totality of how horrible things can be. Um, And I think like, you know, as an adult watching the show, like I think like that's the benefit too, is, you know, there's a lot of subtext happening within like, especially the scene with Medusa that like, I understand, I understand as a person who, you know, had, had slash has a classic obsession. And, um, it's interesting that I think like me and a young person could mm-hmm. take the same message away, um, and be engaging mm-hmm. with completely different context. Yeah. Insofar as like, yeah, like a fan of the series, you know, um, sort of as I was saying, like throughout this, I really do like to see the book interpreted from the start with the understanding of where Mm -hmm. it's going. Um, Like I I do like the fact that 
we're weighing these complicated moral questions mm-hmm. from the jump. And, uh, and, and I think like, even like, yeah, like I also would say that that like serves, you know, like the, uh, my, my experience watching it as an adult, I, that's what I'm interested in. It's in a reason, I guess I, on some level, like why you guys, you know, do this podcast, <laughs> dissecting and analyzing this like great, like cultural artifact and how it's aged. And so getting to start over at like, at like, zero is is uh is really awesome and i also just think that walker just like is percy jackson yes <laughs> like it is remarkable to see such a spot-on sniper fire casting choice like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i can't really speak as someone who uh is not a fan who's watching it but i i will say that like as someone who just like you know like likes film the medusa scene's a really good example they're bridging together a lot of scenes with very distinctly different energies Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's the sign of a group of filmmakers who understand what they're doing. Heck yes. Thank you for that answer. Kyle, the <laughs> last thing we have to do is our awards for this episode. Um, so everybody's going to give out an award and then we'll come up with a category for everybody to vote on if you're listening on Spotify. So Carter, what award would you like to give out here? I think that I would like to give the Nodi Award for I don't know if I should call it Miranda Priestly cosplay, but I lived for Megan Mullally <laughs> giving us drama, talking to herself, sitting straight ahead on a bus and being mean as hell, but also figuring out a way to get us to respect like a 12 year old. I think that she was doing so much interesting work in that scene. And it was specifically interesting work that I like to see. I like to see a woman in that stage of her career doing that giving you a performance that i think is simultaneously very dramatic and very campy and also like funny i i felt all the emotions i'm going to give the persabeth is the greatest love story ever told award to the writers for structuring two identical scenes in which percy and annabeth mirror each other's behaviors without even realizing it because that is so stunningly beautiful to me and mm-hmm. makes perfect sense in the context of the story <laughs> kyle <laughs> Uh, I'm going to give the literally me award <laughs> to Annabeth not being able to choose what she wants in the gas station. <laughs> um, <laughs> watching that scene, I was like, like, I, I have like indecision anxiety to the point where sometimes I just like won't eat for like a day or two because I'm like, oh, well, like it's so hard for me to choose. So when she was going back between all those like different, yeah, like, like jawbreakers, like gumball type things, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, damn, like. I have some articles that might really benefit you, <laughs> Annabeth. <laughs> Send those to us. We'll link them in our show notes. Oh, great. Perfect. We have to pick a Nodi Award category for everybody to vote on. I was going to say something like most rotted, most despicable, vile read delivered by Megan Mullally or Jessica Parker Kennedy in this episode. Most, I think most gutted read is a good one. I think the candidates will be probably like Megan Mullally, Squirrels home are her squirrels. home, Percy... She met a pinecone's fate. Medusa. I wasn't just like you. I was you. That is a read. That That is in some ways the deepest read. Ooh. Mm-hmm. You're that girl I thought you were. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I'm debating whether I want to mention this thing about. No, I think we need to mention the Medusa is sapphic thing. Oh, a hundred percent. I think we'll leave it at that. Okay, so I want to leave the listeners with this, that this Variety article came out before we recorded this episode. And this podcast exists in a weird space now because like, I would consider us to be like, critiquing the show in many ways but like we're not separate from speaking to the creators you know we've participated in these press conferences we have spoken with these people we understand some of their intentions but we've been talking about you know the death of the author Mm -hmm. and i feel like (laughs) i was 
I had to make a real decision here whether I was going to read that article before we did this episode, and I decided to read it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm speaking for both of us. Carter can let me know if they agree that <laughs> we do as people and people who care about this franchise care what the creators intended. But that being said, we do not see that as the sole or even the most valuable interpretation of the work. I agree. The creators, I think, are people who we know are going to have interesting, thoughtful takes about the work. Because obviously, they worked on it. That doesn't mean that their takes are going to necessarily be the best takes. Or that they're authoritative. Or that if they disagree with things that you were thinking, or the most impactful. Or like, yeah, like the most impactful take for you is probably going to be someone's interpretation that is maybe like closer to your perspective or someone who like has more like frames of reference in common with you than the creators. And like to the extent that those opinions or those readings of the show disagree, I think as long as they're both consistent with the work, do what you want. Hear both of them, care about one of them, none of them, all of them, you know, like. Which is to be said, I totally encourage people to read this article. It is rather long actually um, and is beautiful and does mirror a lot of what we said. About Medusa and the survivorship yes i also want to use that as an opportunity to say if you were watching this episode and you listened to medusa talk about athena and you your first thought was hmm that's a little sapphic i want to honor that because whether or not that was the intention doesn't matter um we've spoken about disidentification i don't even think this counts as disidentification like disidentification i think would be a little gay boy being like medusa's fierce i want to be like her when i grow up i think this case is literally just being like okay She said this. She said all these things about her relationship to a woman. What is the most parsimonious reading of this? You could be like, what is the most emotionally resonant reading of this for me? I think it is very consistent with the text as it is presented. Exactly. (laughs) Parsimonious and emotionally resonant to be like, I think Medusa probably was like in love with Athena. And maybe it might not map onto a modern conception of what a relationship would be like because they were a god, an immortal, like 2,500, 3,000 years ago with very different cultural norms. I want to encourage everybody to listen to our Queering Classics episode <laughs> from 2020 and also read Antigone Rising by Dr. Helen Morales. And I think that's where we'll end. <laughs> wow. Wasn't this a phenomenal episode of television? This was wow. truly... I cannot communicate enough that the first time we saw this, we just had to sit there and like, we weren't even... We weren't recording. Like, I guess, I think we do have a recording of it somewhere. But like, we we were just sitting there on like a weekday night being like, we have to... We have to we have to talk about this because that was a phenomenal episode of television. That was like one of the most, that, that's like among the most excited I've been for like a moment of television in quite a while. Yeah. I don't want to say that like it's downhill from here because it's not. It is <laughs> uphill from here. But like this will probably be the most impactful episode in this season for us personally. I think, yeah. Next to the Tunnel of Love and whatever goes down in episode eight. Like It's very probable that, that something will top this. But this was so, so good and was so, so exciting. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, everyone, stay tuned for what we've got in store. Um, we've got some cool things coming up. Um, we will be continuing our Tuesday night Patreon watch-alongs. I'm going to drop in Kyle's clip here about all the wonderful places you can find him on the internet. Um, thank you so much for having me. You can find me uh, on TikTok and Instagram at Kyle Pru. I have a Substack now uh, where I'll be writing weekly articles. Yeah. And I have a web series called Rabbit on YouTube. Um, which will be getting longer. Um, so th- those are the best places to find me. Okay, amazing. Everybody go and find Kyle if you aren't. I'm sure many of you are already <laughs> following Kyle. He's famous. 
Tawny had to go to work, so I will drop <laughs> Tawny's information in our show notes so you can follow them and check out their work. And we will see everybody next time. Bye, all. Bye.